Coming up today, a fun week at Facebook and the end of the zero COVID dream. You're listening to the YGK Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Grace Brown. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when British broadcaster Sky announced its first TV, Sky Glass. The internet-connected telly brings Sky's roster of satellite TV channels to people's homes over the internet. The move could spell the beginning of the end for clunky, ugly satellite dishes. It was also the week when Twitch was hacked. On Wednesday, an anonymous 4chan user leaked 125 gigabytes of Twitch data, which included the pay information for more than 10,000 streamers. It was also the week when the World Health Organization proved the world's first ever malaria vaccine for use in children in Africa. Malaria is responsible for over 400,000 deaths a year, many of which are in children under five in sub-Saharan Africa, which makes the approval of a vaccine a historic turning point in public health. It's easy to think that public health right now is all about COVID, but this is an absolutely huge moment, isn't it, Grace? It's kind of hard to overstate how significant this is. Yeah. I feel like if COVID wasn't happening, we would care a lot more about this. But yes, truly a massive turning point. Ironically, we're going to go on and talk about COVID (laughs) in just a moment. But first, Matt Burgess, let's jump back to Twitch, because that's related to something that you learned this week. Yeah, so the thing that I learned this week came from the uh, Twitch data breach and leak, uh, which is probably a bit of a cop-out, but I'm going to go over it anyway. So uh, unsurprisingly, I learned how much Twitch streamers earn this week. Um, So the top 81 streamers each earned over a million US dollars since late 2019, and the top five earned more than five million each. Um, And the way that they earn these is through either subscriptions or donations or ads on Twitch, but also it's probably worth stating that Um, Some of them may also be earning extra money from outside of Twitch, from merch and other sort of uh, income streams. I think we're in the wrong gig. Should we all become (laughs) Twitch streamers? I'm not sure I could do it. Could do the podcast on Twitch. Would it earn us over a million dollars? Maybe, but maybe not. Grace, what did you learn this week? Um, So this week I learned that the Italian phonetic alphabet uses cities, so cities in Italy, um, instead of the traditional NATO phonetic alphabet that we use in the UK, and I feel like most of the world uses as well, the Alpha, Bravo, Charlie type. Um, So this means that Italians have an extremely in-depth knowledge of all their cities, which I thought was really interesting. Good facts. Maybe we should create a UK-based, a UK city-based phonetic alphabet, just for fun. Let's go right now. It won't be boring at all. Let's start. Uh, Aberdeen, Brighton. No, let's not. All right. First story (laughs) this week is about zero COVID. So for the vast majority of the pandemic, life for New Zealanders has remained strikingly close to normality. Businesses have stayed open. Kids have attended school every day. And masks were practically a foreign concept. And that's starting to change, Grace. 
Yeah, it was pretty much business as usual for New Zealanders um, over the pandemic. I spoke with one scientist who's based in New Zealand and she said it was actually like quite difficult to convey just how normal life has been for people there for the past 18 or so months. Um, and obviously, you know, for the rest of the world, the pandemic has just been horrific. We've had millions infected, mass death, hospitals overrun. And in the UK, we spent most of it locked down at home. Um, but in New Zealand, it's just been one of those countries that has seemed almost untouched by, t- by the pandemic. In total, they've recorded just 27 deaths. Here in the UK, we've had almost 140,000. So to put that in context, if we were to compare the death counts between the two countries, the UK would have had just 300 deaths, which is just crazy to think about. Um, so why did New Zealand fare so much better? Um, So basically early on in the pandemic, they decided to pursue what is called an elimination strategy, or people might know it better as zero COVID. Um, Other countries also followed a zero COVID approach, countries like Australia, China, Hong Kong, Singapore. And for a really long time, that strategy worked incredibly, incredibly well. And we'll get on to what's changing in just a minute. But let's rewind first. What is zero COVID? Um, Is it really a realistic option given where we're at with the pandemic right now? So a lot of people have kind of the wrong idea of what zero COVID is. They think it means trying to eradicate the virus, but actually really it means just trying to eliminate the virus for a certain period of time. Usually it's 28 days. Um, So for New Zealand, this meant shutting their borders for pretty much the entirety of the pandemic. And when the virus did get in, using strict measures such as the quarantine hotels to keep it from spreading. And it really worked for New Zealand, as we saw, um, and as well as the other countries who followed it. They've all had the lowest death counts, the lowest infection rates, and even their economies have suffered the least. Um, to compare it to the UK, the UK had an economic decline in 2020 that was four times greater than New Zealand or Australia. But the thing with the zero COVID approach is that it's not designed to work long term. And obviously now we're pretty sure that SARS-CoV-2 is never going to be eradicated and it's probably more likely to become endemic like the common cold is. Um, so this meant that New Zealand wasn't going to be able to keep it up forever. But they weren't planning on dropping it just yet. As recently as August 2021, the plan was to continue with it indefinitely. Indefinitely is such a difficult word, right? Mm, it's yeah. hard to imagine New Zealand acting in the way it's acted through the pandemic over the last 1920 months for years, decades to come, right? That policy can't hold. And one of the major reasons that it can't hold is because of this thing that we've come to know all too well, the Delta variant. And that's what's changed in recent weeks, isn't it? Exactly. So the Delta variant came to Auckland in about mid-August. Um, And this meant that Auckland had to go immediately into a really strict lockdown. And they've been in that strict lockdown until very recently. So that meant they've been locked down for almost two months now. Um, And then on Monday, Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister, announced that the country would actually be moving away from the elimination strategy or zero COVID um, because the Delta variant meant that the strategy just wasn't working anymore. Um, And the news was met with a certain smugness, I would say, from the rest of the Western media. Throughout the pandemic, many people have been quite critical um, and picked apart the zero COVID approach, saying that it was doomed to failure or that it was an expensive fantasy. So now that New Zealand has announced that it's moving away from it, 
these people saw it as a kind of vindication of their criticisms. So that's pretty dramatic and there's probably a little bit of political opportunism at play here from Ardern's rivals. But it kind of seems weird to say that the zero COVID strategy failed. I mean, you put it in fairly stark terms. If the death rate equivalent to population was the same in the UK as it was in New Zealand, only 300 people would have died of COVID as it is. 140,000 have and hundreds more are dying each day. So why abandon zero COVID or is it not quite so black and white as it worked or it failed? Yeah, it's definitely not black and white. And the important thing to remember is that the Delta variant just completely changed things for New Zealand. Zero COVID made sense with the original virus, which had an average incubation period of about five or six days, which meant that contact tracing had enough time to alert any contacts and stop the infection at the source. But with the Delta, it only has an incubation period of about four days, which makes contact tracing that much more difficult. So this outbreak that started in Auckland in August has just been so much harder to nip in the bud. But it's important to remember, and the media has kind of framed this incorrectly, um, New Zealand is not abandoning the elimination strategy just yet they're moving away from it and it's going to be a slow transition Auckland is still going to have some pretty severe restrictions going forward um, because the Delta outbreak is still there Um, the strategy they're using from now on is what they're calling maximum suppression um, which is aiming to contain and control the virus Ardern has said Okay, so in terms of there being two very different pandemics um, in New Zealand and most of the rest of the world, where we're starting to see some similarity now is that phrase right there, contain and control, right? We've heard a lot of that kind of language in the UK and in many other countries around the world where COVID has been running rife. And what's happening in New Zealand right now has made me reflect on where I am personally with the pandemic. I've spent the last few months since I was vaccinated grappling with I guess quite a weird idea. We spent pretty much a year trying really, really hard not to catch COVID. And I still don't want to. I really don't want to get the thing. But it's looking like it's endemic, as you said. So I guess most of us will catch it at some point. And the question is, when and under what conditions will we be vaccinated? And if so, will we've had a booster shot? And if we do get ill, how full will hospitals be? And what treatments will be available? So for me... Zero COVID was a way of keeping people safe when there were no other options. Delta, as you said, changed that. And now we've got vaccines and treatments. But that's not to say that New Zealand's going to let the virus run riot. It still wants to keep people safe. It's just if people do catch it now, their chances of surviving are so much higher. Yeah, that's exactly it. So saying that it failed is incorrect to me because it was never designed to last forever it was just designed to keep New Zealanders safe for that first year of the pandemic where we had very little treatments no vaccine hospitals were being completely overwhelmed and zero COVID for New Zealanders was just a way of keeping the virus out when they needed to keep it out so now that they're changing tack it does mean that maybe cases will rise but they will be much better equipped to deal with the cases when they do come. One area where New Zealand maybe has dropped the ball, right, is vaccinations. And we've seen the same in Australia and across a number of countries in Asia that initially handled the pandemic very well. But then because it went on for so long and then the Delta variant came along, 
the lack of vaccination coverage in a number of countries has called into question how equipped they are um, to cope with really big outbreaks. And that's the case in New Zealand, right? Um, New Zealand was pretty slow on the vaccine front compared to the rest of the Western world. They had no real sense of urgency to vaccinate quickly, um, as there was here in the UK, for instance. So right now, about 80% of the eligible population has received their first dose and about half are fully vaccinated. But the vaccine drive in New Zealand still has a long way to go. And this has meant that some New Zealanders are a little bit worried that it's too soon to drop the elimination strategy. The lowest rates of vaccination are in marginalised communities, such as the Maori people. Less than 60% of the Maori population in New Zealand has had their first job. So one big concern for people in New Zealand is that it might widen existing inequalities. And compared to their communication skills for the rest of the pandemic, the government in New Zealand has been unusually unclear and vague in explaining why exactly they're making this decision, which is kind of adding to the sense of unease there amongst the general public. So what you're saying is a shift in strategy requires a shift in communication. The terms of engagement with the virus aren't what they were in February, March, April last year, and for the vast majority of the pandemic, we're entering a new phase, right? So New Zealand did the whole communication thing really, really well during that early and even through recent stages of the pandemic. You know, this idea of Team New Zealand, and we've seen a a similar strategy used in Canada, which has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. Now, in the UK, as in the US and lots of other countries, that communication was really poor and has arguably continued to be poor around vaccination, which is why in certain communities across the UK and the US, vaccination rates remain really low. And we're struggling to persuade more people to get vaccinated and get up um, towards 80, 90 percent coverage. So New Zealand is now struggling with similar problems. The pandemic has changed and the communication around it has to change, too. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if they're moving away from this strategy, it does mean that cases are likely to rise. And considering how few cases they've had, this means that probably people are going to panic. Um, A good example to compare this to actually is Singapore. Singapore was following the elimination strategy too until quite recently um, when they chose to move away from it after vaccinating the majority of their population. But um, in fact, people in Singapore have actually been calling for stricter measures to be reinstated there after the cases began to rise again. Um, And I actually spoke with one researcher who had studied and compared countries who had followed the elimination strategy, trying to figure out why exactly they had fared so much better. And she found one of the key tenets was engagement with the community. And she made clear that going forward, that if this is going to work for New Zealand and if um, they're going to keep up public trust that the government has to communicate with the general public um, and convince them that this is actually the right decision. And it's hard to adjust, right? I don't think that my struggles in understanding what my risk is at this stage of the pandemic are unique. I mean, they're they're definitely not. And in New Zealand, they've mourned every death because there were so few. But in many countries... So many people have died that it's almost impossible to comprehend. You know, even in the UK right now, 30,000 plus people being infected every day that we know of and 100 plus deaths every day. And that's just sort of accepted. But, you know, those those case counts and death counts might not be incredibly meaningful, but in New Zealand, they'd be a national tragedy. And this isn't a one size fits all approach to 
exiting the pandemic, if that's even a thing. One death from COVID in the UK is a footnote. In New Zealand, it's a huge deal. Does that ever change? Yeah, for me, just I've asked quite quickly in the UK, all the numbers, all the deaths, counts and the infection rates very quickly began to lose like all meaning for me you know it just became this huge number that I really like could not comprehend and one um, researcher who I spoke with in New Zealand said that they've mourned every single death there which just really stuck out to me I was like the number in the UK is so massive that it feels like all these people might even be forgotten one day um, which is something that is very unsettling to think about um so yeah, I wonder I wonder how it's going to change for New Zealanders. You know, if the number does rise, how are they going to deal with it? Will the pandemic change dramatically for them and how they think about it? Let's go back to zero COVID then. Just because it no longer works, that doesn't mean that New Zealand hasn't done incredibly well. And incredible is, is probably an understatement here. And hopefully it can continue to do incredibly well at protecting its population from this disease. Just because they're moving away slowly from zero covid doesn't mean that new zealand isn't really really on top of this virus yeah i mean if delta hadn't come along maybe they would have continued with zero covid for a little bit while longer but it just it's obvious that they can't do it for now and one thing that we can take away is that zero covid served new zealand extremely well throughout the pandemic and it will probably inform public health policy for reacting to future pandemics as well um but yeah just for new zealand it's time to change their approach i know we've got a really really international audience uh listening to the podcast each week how's your com- uh, how's your country handling this exit from the pandemic if you like or moving from one strategy to another is vaccination rates increase and how are you thinking and feeling about it what's your own sort of personal risk assessment and what's the what's the best approach who should we be looking to podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else that you want us to bring onto the show For our second story this week, we're on to one of my favourite subjects, Facebook. It's been a busy week for Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Hot on the heels of explosive leaked documents revealing the company's innermost secrets, Facebook has again been forced onto the defensive when the source of those leaks testified before US Senate. More on that later, but first, Matt Burgess. Facebook also spent a good chunk of this week offline. What the hell happened? So on Monday afternoon or and evening in the UK, if you were trying to message somebody on WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger to poke somebody on Facebook or game on an Oculus Rift or even post a video uh, or photo to Instagram, you wouldn't have been able to, which I imagine that many people probably realised uh, by this point. Uh, but all of Facebook services went down for around six or seven hours uh, on that day. Services online going down aren't uncommon. Every year, sort of multiple platforms normally spend some time going down and being offline and being accessible. However, it's pretty rare for one of the big tech companies to go down for so long. Most of the time, uh, if a platform or service goes down, we see it vanish for 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour at most. Um, so that's why this... W- incident really stood out the amount of time that facebook's products were down for and also that all of them were down at the same time really sort of stood out to people okay so what caused it because there was some fun detective work going on because there was enough time for people to 
ask questions and kind of interrogate uh, different theories. So what caused it? Was it as simple as someone putting the wrong number into a piece of software somewhere? So essentially, yeah, it was due to a sort of like technical misconfiguration. But I think first up, it's probably worth sort of stressing that this wasn't anything to do with hackers or anybody like or any sort of activity like that. So uh, quite often when services go down, there's this initial sort of assumption that uh, a company might have been hacked or having its uh, infrastructure taken offline by a criminal group or something like that. And and we saw that with this outage as well. So in the first few hours, there was quite a lot of speculation that uh, some sort of hackers or a criminal group could have been behind this outage uh, without any real evidence. And uh, if that was the case, that uh, we saw a big platform like this go down because of sort of hacking activity, uh, it would... Uh, have to be because there was a really sort of exceptional set of circumstances because to have a sort of outage like this where all of the products and services uh, are offline across the board it's one where it's so uh, unlikely that sort of hackers would have access to everything it would be very sort of exceptional so um, I think it's just worth pointing out because I think a lot of people always jump to that to begin with but in this case, uh, as has been the uh, as been common with other sort of recent internet outages and services going down, the problems really come back to the internet's infrastructure and errors. And it's very much worth remembering that really at this point that the internet is actually hundreds of thousands of different networks of different sizes that are owned by various different companies and organizations so facebook will have its own networks that are set, set as part of uh, the bigger internet infrastructure as will many other companies and in this case facebook's problem starts stemmed really from uh, a problem with the border gateway protocol uh, often known as bgp um, and essentially uh, to strip out away all the technology technological stuff behind this uh, changes that facebook made to its routers uh, interrupted its communication with wider networks so basically facebook systems stopped talking to the wider internet um, internet infrastructure uh, company cloudflare described it as if someone had pulled all the cables from their data centers at once and disconnected from the internet so during this time when all of the servers and everything was off and facebook was offline all of our phones computers and similar devices would have been reaching out and looking for Facebook but they couldn't find anything because it wasn't sort of connected and and findable on the on the larger network and one of the reasons that it took Facebook so long to fix the problem it wasn't an especially complex problem but Facebook couldn't see it because somewhat amusingly the systems that Facebook Instagram and WhatsApp use are also the systems that Facebook's internal systems use so Facebook employees use a version of Facebook to communicate it's called workplace that went down Facebook's building management system it appears also uses a version of Facebook or routes through Facebook system that went down too and that weirdly locked employees out of offices yeah, it's one of the reasons why it took a little while to get this fix sorted, because essentially all of the infrastructure that Facebook use is, is owned by Facebook and it uses the same set of uh, technical systems behind the scenes. Um, so multiple reporters at the New York Times heard from Facebook staff who said that they weren't able to access buildings because their badges weren't working on access doors because the access doors and the systems couldn't uh, find Facebook's own um, servers and systems. Uh, employees said that they had trouble making calls from work issued cell phones and receiving emails from people outside the company um, and as you mentioned James Facebook's internal uh, communications platform Workplace which I think also other companies can use as well uh, 
like in a similar instance to Teams or Slack or anything like that, uh, that was also taking out, leaving many sort of people unable to do their jobs. Uh, some of them turned to other platforms to communicate, including LinkedIn and Zoom, as well as sort of Discord chat rooms. Um, and there was a general sense of overall chaos, really, I think. Um, and the head of Instagram uh, tweeted out uh, describing it as being like a snow day because nobody could access any systems or do any work. All right, and snow days may be a little bit belittling, right? Um, it's maybe an opportunity for some people to take a break from Facebook or to point at Facebook and laugh, which people might want to pause and do right now. But the impact of Facebook, Instagram, and probably particularly WhatsApp being down goes beyond people not being able to post memes or share banter or whatever the hell online in many parts of the world. Facebook and the platforms that it owns are the internet. You know, WhatsApp is the internet. It is the way that people connect with the wider world. And with these services offline for six, seven hours, many people and businesses were effectively cut off. It's one of the things that really sort of like stands out to me from this sort of reading reports around how the um, how the outage affected different people in different countries and different uh, ways that people rely on Facebook, really. So it does show how much uh, as, as a world we do um, rely on its services and its products. So just as a couple of uh, of the latest sort of facts and, and numbers around this. So um 2.76 billion people on average use at least one of Facebook's products every single day in June, according to the company's own figures. And WhatsApp is used to send more than 100 billion messages a day, which is just sort of incomprehensible to try and understand. And while many people were joking that Facebook should be kept offline or that the world would be a better place without it on so on other social media platforms that were still up, etc., there is that bigger impact of the services going down. So in India, Latin America, Africa... Um, Facebook and its products are often used uh, as the internet. They are the way that people connect online um, and they're very much seen as, by some people, as the actual, the overall internet and they're how everybody communicates. In a lot of these cases, we are talking about WhatsApp because that is pretty much one of Facebook's biggest products. Um, and, a, and one thing that sort of shows this is in Zimbabwe, WhatsApp accounted for nearly half of all the country's internet traffic recently. And in Brazil, um, people with a phone, or the majority of people with a phone, check WhatsApp at least once every single hour. Um, and really, there's a lot of the sort of infrastructure and way that people sort of communicate that has been uh, rooted through Facebook's dominance and control for its products really so in a lot of cases governments are run on facebook's messaging services police services can use it to communicate with other people um, teachers have used whatsapp and uh, messenger during the pandemic to speak with children when they've been working remotely or in lockdowns and things like that and businesses themselves often often use facebook's own uh, marketplace or services or pages and instagram pages and, and shopping facilities to be able to sort of connect with customers sell products make delivery and everything that really goes into running a business. Um, so in, in some cases, when um, the, the outage was happening, uh, people in various countries uh, reported that their businesses basically stopped for the day. They couldn't do any work because uh, customers couldn't get in touch with them and they couldn't um, use this platform or the platforms that they were using to make and organize their deliveries. Um, so for many people, Facebook is the main way that people keep in touch. And in some instances, it's cheaper than making calls. And I think that that's one thing that this outage really highlighted, just the overall sort of scale of the services and how much uh, power essentially Facebook has by uh, being able to control all of these different platforms and be able to really understand, uh, really be a key touch point in everybody's life. 
Um, and the outage this week wasn't the only time that Facebook's outsized impact on the world has been sort of thrust into uh, the spotlight this week. So over the last few years, it's not been uncommon to see Facebook executives, even Mark Zuckerberg, sometimes in front of US lawmakers being grilled on the company's actions. Usually, usually these sorts of hearings come with uh, a lot of PR spin from the company and a lot of defensive talk about how Facebook has made the world uh, a better place and is isn't is being misunderstood by people. But this week we saw hearings in the US which were very different, James. Yeah, so Facebook is bad for democracy. Facebook is bad for kids. Facebook is downright evil. These are all big alarming claims that have been thrown around for years, including by US lawmakers when they're attempting to get a soundbite out of Mark Zuckerberg or any of his charges. But they've really failed to have much of an impact on Facebook. Then along came a woman called Frances Hogan. So the former Facebook data scientist turned whistleblower took those claims and provided the evidence gathered by Facebook itself to prove a lot of what we have believed or had scant evidence on for years. So when Haugen quit in May of this year, she took with her a vast trove of documents that show, amongst other things, that Facebook apparently knowingly structures its products in a way that is harmful. And it does so because it makes Facebook more money. And this week, Haugen gave testimony before the Senate Commerce Subcommittee on Consumer Protection to explain in detail what Facebook is really about. So this hearing was something that went on for multiple hours. I think it was three, four hours in in general with uh, quite a few good questions from the lawmakers who had been obviously doing their homework on this case. And it felt a little bit different to uh, some of the other previous hearings. So what did we learn from Haugen here? So as I just said, she said that Facebook knows that some of its platforms are harmful to some people. In particular, she referenced the harm caused to teenage girls on Instagram. And to quote, she said, they know that algorithmic-based rankings or engagement-based rankings keeps you on the site longer. You have longer sessions, you show up more often, and that makes them more money. Now, remember, until recently, Facebook was developing a version of Instagram specifically for children and teenagers. That project is now on hold, but not cancelled, after details of it were leaked. Haugen had an alternative proposal. Raise the minimum age for anybody using social media from 13 years old to 17. Now, naturally, Facebook didn't necessarily agree with a lot of what Haugen said. So after a bit of a period of silence, Mark Zuckerberg uh, came out and said that it isn't true uh, in his view that the company puts profits before people. And he also claimed that many of the uh, claims that uh, were being talked about and reported on don't make sense to him and that some of the research around Instagram's impact had been misrepresented in wider context and things like that. And generally, uh, Zuckerberg, did quite a long post on this uh, on his own sort of Facebook account and and seemed uh, to be saying that, yes, Facebook doesn't agree with what we've seen here. Um, but uh, some of the points that they were, that he was also talking about some regulation, which we'll come on into a minute. But a lot of the uh, hearing as well and parts of the hearing um, were very much focused on the US. And as we discussed earlier, there's a lot of people that are outside the US who use Facebook. Um, in fact, more people use it from outside the US than in uh, in the US. And in many ways, sort of like some of the things that were being described in these hearings are being shown to be w- a lot worse elsewhere in the world than in the US. And that's something that is quite often overlooked in discussions about Facebook's impact. Yeah, and the kind of impact that Facebook can have in countries outside the US 
was perhaps for the first time really, really obviously shown inside the US with the Capitol riots that were linked to activity, heavily linked to activity on Facebook. And Haugen was especially strong on this issue of Facebook's damage in countries that are out of sight, out of mind. So to quote again, What we saw in Myanmar and we are now seeing in Ethiopia are only the opening chapters of a story so terrifying that no one wants to read the end of it, is what Haugen said. So she warned that Facebook was literally fanning ethnic violence in places such as Ethiopia because it was not policing its services adequately outside of the US. So let's put that into context. And this builds on some of the numbers that Matt was reading out earlier. Half of Myanmar's population of 53 million people use Facebook. For many in the country, Facebook is the internet. And recent research has found that Facebook's algorithm was promoting posts that incited violence against protesters marching against the country's recent military coup. Facebook's algorithm is also pushing people in Myanmar to like and follow pages that incite violence against protesters, despite the fact that those people might not have any interest initially in inciting violence against protesters. Facebook wants to push them towards that content because it is more engaging. And for a final word on this... Let's go back to Halgen. She says, Facebook knows, and they have admitted in public, that engagement-based ranking is dangerous without integrity and security systems. And she adds that despite this, Facebook has failed to roll out such integrity systems to most languages in the world. Out of sight, out of mind, especially when Facebook makes most of its money from more valuable users in Western countries. Yeah, that is very much the case. Earlier this year, I was doing some reporting on sort of conspiracy theories uh, in Arabic that were spreading on Facebook. And um, there was not a lot of transparency around sort of the systems that were being uh, used to moderate this if they were in place and the translation systems and uh, the overall resource that were put in place here. So it is definitely a very big issue and something that is uh, a a big concern and probably lawmakers should look at very closely. Um, But Alf Haugen's testimony, there was one soundbite that sort of really stuck out. She said, the buck stops with Mark. Haugen was at pains to point out that no other company of this size is controlled so completely by one individual. So is Mark Zuckerberg the problem here? It's a good soundbite, isn't it? And it's probably quite a good point too. So Zuckerberg is the founder and CEO and chairman of Facebook. What people might not realise is he holds a 55% share of all the voting shares at the company. That is exceedingly unusual at a company with a trillion dollar plus valuation. The fundamental point that Haugen made in her testimony and with the documents that she leaked is basically that Facebook prioritises profits and growth over the safety of its users. Or to put it another way, it is so focused on metrics, it doesn't notice or care or can't see the collateral damage that it causes. And From her perspective, with the amount of control that Mark Zuckerberg has over Facebook, quote, the buck stops with Mark. And related to that, Haugen made another good point. Facebook is incredibly insular. To quote, during my time at Facebook, I came to realise a devastating truth. Almost no one outside of Facebook knows what happens inside Facebook, she said. She went on to say that the company intentionally hides vital information from the public, from the US government and from governments around the world. Now, Of course, it's not Facebook's prerogative to share that information. It's not required to do so by law. And it operates in a regulatory environment that has allowed it to become ludicrously powerful and wealthy while also remaining completely unaccountable. Or more or less completely unaccountable. A lot of what Haugen had to say isn't new, but the evidence that she's leaked is. The question now is, what do we do about it? And by we, I probably mean the US government, but also 
lawmakers around the world. Yeah, it's a really good point. And it's something that we've seen uh, in the responses from Mark Zuckerberg. He said that he wants to be regulated. He said this for a few years, to be fair to him. Uh, and obviously, Facebook would want to be involved in the discussions about its own regulation and things like that. But it has said that it's open to being regulated and controlled in different ways. And as we mentioned, we've seen quite a lot of sort of blustering from lawmakers over big tech firms in recent years. There's been a lot of talk about something needs to be done to control big tech, but largely around the world and particularly more so in the US, not much has actually been done. Um, that's partly because the problems we're talking about here are very hard and the, the situations are pretty unprecedented, but also because there's been sort of a reluctance from lawmakers to actually do anything substantial until now. Um, James, do you get the sense that things are starting to change now with this hearing? Yeah, the testimony was an opportunity. This is something that kind of depressingly we've seen when lawmakers have had an opportunity to grill Mark Zuckerberg and executives at other major technology companies. They've tend to, tended to resort to grandstanding, right? They want their sound bites. They want to pile on and say things that sound good in news reports, right? So committee chairman Richard Blumenthal called the company morally bankrupt. That's fine, but what does it mean? We're used to these performative hearings where executives are dragged over the coals only for nothing to change. But the occasional soundbite aside, this felt different. So the questions, for one, asked this time, were better. They focused on Facebook's algorithms and a pretty good understanding of the role they play in boosting problematic content. They also got into the details of how Facebook's algorithms are constantly changing to favour certain types of content over others. And what was helpful there is Haugen. They were speaking to somebody with a deep knowledge of how Facebook works from having worked there, but crucially, someone that wasn't there to go on the defensive and tell them how great Facebook is as a company, which which is the problem that we've had in the past. And Haugen was really good on this issue. So she pointed to a change that Facebook made to its algorithm back in 2018 when it started to prioritise meaningful social interaction above everything else. And this basically meant that Facebook boosted posts that got lots of engagement, creating a feedback loop that propelled hate speech and conspiracy theories into the news feeds of millions of people. The problem for Facebook, Haugen noted is that if you change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on Facebook and Facebook will make less money because people see less adverts. In a weird way, but a very true way, you can trace a line between Facebook's repeated record-breaking profits and the capital rioters. Those rioters were, without meaning to be glib, seriously engaged. So there are a number of ways this could go. Facebook could be broken up. It could be shrunk in some kind of way. But that doesn't tackle the root cause, which is that at the very core of Facebook is the attention economy, the clicks, the likes and the shares that are fundamentally harmful to humanity. You can break up Facebook, but the algorithms will continue to be dangerous, right? That's what needs to change. And one area where Haugen was kind of weak was when she talked about solutions, on which she was a bit solutionist rather than interventionist. So she was basically saying, hey, nah, technology can solve this problem. I mean, it's cute, but it can't, right? Technology created this problem. What's needed now is proper engagement from regulators and lawmakers and society to find the best way to solve this problem. 
Yeah, I'm very much getting a sense of deja vu with this. Like we have talked about these types of issues for several years, even on the podcast. I remember various discussions that we've had about sort of misinformation spreading on Facebook and, and some of the ideas around uh, how the, the platform can be harmful to, to society and, and things like that. And it feels like we haven't necessarily moved on a huge amount in a few years until this point does feel a little bit more like we're getting there in terms of like the discussions that are being had around this so how this is the big question james how how do we fix it all right i've got a great plan you could turn off the algorithms right so facebook only got really big off the back of turning them on you remember when feeds were chronological right that wasn't so long ago uh where you went on there and you just saw a reversed chronological feed of stuff that had been posted over the last couple of days and When you got to the bottom of it, it was like, there's no more now. Another thing you can think of is how to tweak the algorithms to promote, quote, good things, such as giving to charitable causes or helping others or actively participating in your local community. Though working out what is good is likely to cause more problems than it solves. So how about holding Facebook responsible for the real world harms that it causes. If posts on Facebook are contributing to ethnic cleansing and acts of terrorism, then hold Facebook accountable in law for allowing its systems to be used in that way. And finally, if Facebook is especially bad at tackling these problems in certain parts of the world, why not force it to withdraw from those countries if it can't put the moderation and control measures in place to properly protect the people that use its platforms? Yeah, it's it's hard, isn't it? Like they're all very sort of like concrete suggestions of things that can be done, but they all come with their own set of problems, their own set of challenges and everything that also links back to or you can't deny that it links back to some of the infrastructure issues that we we're talking about earlier where Facebook is so big, much of the world relies upon it at this stage. Um but things where they where things get really tricky and difficult is when you're actually deciding upon next steps. So so what does happen next? Yeah. And as you said earlier, Matt, Facebook really wants to be regulated, right? It's sticking up its hands and going, you tell us what to do. So it is. It's up to regulators and lawmakers in the US to actually do something rather than just slapping Facebook around the chops in showpiece hearings and testimony. The problem is, is that, as we've seen in the past with, let's say, big tobacco and big oil, to pick two really obvious examples, is regulation of big, powerful companies and industries doesn't tend to work all that well if there's a really, really strong lobbying game going on behind the scenes, right? Facebook wants to be regulated by lawmakers and regulators who are sympathetic to it, shall we say, or who accept the idea that Facebook should be big and should be powerful. It just needs to operate under certain conditions. And very often what we see is regulation strengthens the hand of incumbents and locks things in place and gives them an environment to operate in that, yes, has more controls in, but doesn't tend to do much to damage their bottom line. I mean, look at how big oil companies are still, despite the fact that the world is burning all around us. And here's the thing. We don't know how to govern apps and services used by billions of people. Such services have never existed before. And if Facebook is broken up, they may never exist again in this huge, powerful, unaccountable form. But we don't have an example of what they look like once we get there. So ultimately, Facebook might be a glitch of the move fast and break things era of Silicon Valley largesse. But what comes next is almost completely unknown. And what we're seeing now might and hopefully is 
the height of Facebook's powers. And that's the good that can come of this. Facebook is being battered by lawsuits around the world, right? It's fighting with Apple over privacy. The EU is investigating it from all angles. It's losing valuable eyeballs to TikTok, which in itself is problematic in all sorts of ways. For years, Facebook has told the world, you tell us what to do. Well, the, the time's come to respond, right, Matt? And I guess it's not that we're running out of time, but this is taking such a long time to get going that it's kind of ridiculous that we're still having these conversations. It's, it's well known that obviously the law sort of like is several years often behind sort of uh, the actual technology we're seeing being developed and like you can just look at multiple cases uh, from history where sort of the law is always always playing catch up on this but it does seem that now we've got to a point where some of these technology companies and it isn't just facebook obviously here that we're talking about there are uh, there are impacts of other big tech firms such as as Google and Apple and uh, all of the other really big giants uh, in this system that are facing lots of scrutiny around the world uh, from lawmakers and regulators on competition, privacy, monopolies, all of these types of issues. Um, And they're all very much sort of coming to a head where while a lot of these companies can still grow, there's a lot of people that are not connected to the internet in a lot of places. Um, they're probably reaching the, that peak. They're probably getting to the stage where their growth, uh, at least in their sort of core products, is going to slow in terms of user numbers and things like that. So it has got to a stage where definitely, obviously, something needs to be done by now. But there are no easy answers on any of this because whatever you do is going to have an impact on different people and different people who use the services as well as actually sort of the companies themselves which um yeah which themselves also don't know how they should be um or at least publicly don't see how they should be regulated and controlled podcast at wired.co.uk how would you fix facebook is the answer breaking it up is the answer changing how its algorithms operate more accountability less mark zuckerberg What's the solution here or the, what are the solutions here? Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the show this week. Or if you're trawling back through the archive, feel free to drop us a line about a recent episode as well. I'm very sad to report that there were no emails in the podcast inbox this week, which makes us incredibly sad. So do get in touch. Podcast at wired.co.uk. That's it then for this week. Have a good one and we'll see you again same time next week. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye.